Hello, I hope you're having a good day. I need to tell you something. I have a problem. I get frustrated when cars in front of me are going under the speed limit. Sometimes I even express my frustration out loud. Not a proud moment. Well, one morning, a long time ago, I was driving my kids to school as I did every morning. I was going south on 25, and then I was gonna turn right on Illinois and then make a quick left down a side street, which was one of my shortcuts. Well, a few blocks before we got to Illinois, we came behind an older car who was going under the speed limit. So of course I was frustrated. But then I noticed that the back of the driver's head looked a lot like my father-in-law, who was no longer with us. So I asked my kids, and they said, yeah, that does look like grandpa. But that didn't deter my frustration because we were on a time limit. So just before I get to my turn to turn right, the car in front of me suddenly speeds up. So now you go the speed limit? So I make my turn to the right, and just before I was making my turn to the left, this huge SUV comes barreling down that same side street, and had I tried to turn left just seconds earlier, it would have plowed right into us. Needless to say, we were quite shaken and very grateful that we were spared an accident and a collision with this huge SUV. But then it got me to wondering, had God sent that driver and got our attention of the driver because of the way he looked and the way he drove to slow us down so that we would miss being hit by the car, by the SUV. Well, to me, it was miraculous. I still remember it tw over 20 years later. And I'm sure there are many of you who would have similar stories of God's intervention. Well, in the establishment of the early church, God used miracles to confirm the authority of, his, of the messengers of his gospel. And although he doesn't use miracles in the same way as he did in the early church, he never stops caring for us and revealing himself to us in miraculous ways. Today we're going to look at Acts 5 through 9 and see that the Holy Spirit will reveal counterfeit motives, empower courage to witness, and call believers to a committed faith so that we could better remember and apply Acts 5 through 9, I've taken the main people and put them into three divisions. Those with great courage, those committed to spreading the gospel, and the counterfeits. First, let's look at courage. In 1978, I went to Europe with my mother, my oldest sister, my uncle, and my cousin. We left just days before my college graduation. The purpose of the trip was to visit Romania, where my mother was born. Of all her siblings, she was the only one born there. Well, my uncle, he had been to Romania before, so he knew what we were up against. When we got to the Romanian border, we were very nervous because my mother's passport said she was born there, and we weren't sure if that was going to cause us any trouble. Well, it did. The border guards had us pull off to the side, raise our trunk, and then they would point to a piece of luggage, and whosoever it was had to go inside while they searched it. My sister had decided that if they pointed to one of my mother's pieces of luggage, that she would say it was hers and go inside instead. 
My sister was especially nervous, though, because she had packed a suitcase of clothes that she was going to leave behind with our relatives. And she had women and men's clothing. And she was afraid if they picked that suitcase, how would she explain that? And she was afraid it would draw attention to us. But they never chose that suitcase. So after hours of making us wait, going through our luggage, and taking the small bribes that my uncle would leave on the front seat of the car, they finally let us go. And as we were driving away, my uncle said, well, at least they didn't find the Bibles. Bibles? We didn't know that we were smuggling Bibles into a communist country? And wisely, my uncle didn't tell us because he knew we would have been so nervous, we definitely would have drawn attention to our behavior. But my uncle knew, he knew they were there, but he remained calm because to him it was more important to bring those Bibles to our relatives who longed for a Bible in their own language. To my uncle, it was worth the risk and the Holy Spirit gave him the courage. In chapter four, we saw the courage displayed by Peter and John when they were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Even though they were commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they never stopped preaching. The intimidation didn't work. The Holy Spirit authenticated the ministry of Peter and the apostles as they continued to perform signs and wonders as we learned and read in Acts 5. But this made the Sanhedrin jealous. So they had all the apostles arrested and put in jail. But that night, an angel of the Lord came and freed the apostles and told them, the next morning, go back to the temple and keep preaching God's word. So the next day, when the Sanhedrin convened and they were ready to pass judgment, the apostles weren't there. They were obediently in the temple preaching God's word. So the captain and his officers go and get the apostles and bring them back before the Sanhedrin again. Again, the apostles shared the truth about Jesus with the Sanhedrin, just like Peter and John had done when they were arrested. In answer to why they defied the Sanhedrin's order to stop preaching about Jesus and instead fill Jerusalem with their teaching, Peter and the other apostles answered, uh, replied in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. This response enraged the Sanhedrin, but the Lord used the convincing words of Gamaliel to spare the lives of the apostles. So to show their authority, the Sanhedrin ordered them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus and they had them flogged. They would have been flogged with leather whips. They would have received 13 lashes on their chest and 26 lashes on their back or a total of 39, or 40 minus one, which was Jewish tradition. After the flogging, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Even in the face of danger and possible death, the apostles obeyed Jesus and they never stopped speaking about his work on the cross and his resurrection.
At this point in time, God spared the lives of the apostles and they continued on with their work, but God did not spare the life of Stephen. Stephen, or Stephanos, the victor's crown, is, we first meet him when he is chosen as one of the seven to care for the widows as told in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Stephen was also the first to do miracles outside of the apostles. The miracles that Stephen performed and his preaching drew opposition from the synagogue of the freedmen. This was a synagogue made up of freed Jewish slaves that were from Greek areas. They tried arguing with Stephen, but they couldn't stand up against him because Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and was given wisdom and words to speak to draw these men to Christ, not to win arguments. However, Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin because of the lies of the synagogue of the freedmen. Have you had someone say false things about you or your family? There are so many, so many emotions that, that come up when this happens. Bewilderment, anger, frustration. But Stephen was so filled with the Holy Spirit that his face shined like an angel. He was calm and clear thinking before his enemies. Stephen systematically went through the history of Israel and showed the Sanhedrin how the people had repeatedly rejected God's message that he sent through the prophets. And now they had rejected the gospel and had resisted the Holy Spirit. This is the third time the Sanhedrin hears the truth about Jesus. Acts 7 is a wonderful summary of Israel's history. And Stephen's account was taken from his reading of the Greek Septuagint, which Janus told us about. The Holy Spirit brought to mind the facts and details so that Stephen could speak boldly. And this boldness caused this. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Before he was dragged out by the angry mob and before he was stoned to death, Stephen had this vision of Jesus. To me, this vision coming just after he had finished speaking was another miracle showing all who was there, this is my messenger and what he says is true. But that miraculous vision did not deter his enemies. During Stephen's stoning, he asked forgiveness for his accusers, just like Jesus asked for forgiveness for his on the cross. Stephen was the first to be martyred for faith in Jesus Christ. Through the centuries, and even today as I speak, believers give their life for their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Are you willing to give your life for Christ, literally? We have been protected in this country for centuries, but we can still see Satan at work, raising lies to the same level as truth, working deception and accusation into all aspects of our society. How were the apostles and Stephen able to have such courage and faith to obey God? We know, friends, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We have the same courage, the same wisdom, and the same words to speak because we are believers in Jesus Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the theme we're going to hear over and over again in Acts. I want to bring up one more thing before we move on from this section. Before Stephen is seized and brought before the Sanhedrin, Acts 6-7 six tell, tells us that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Well, there were about 8,000 priests serving at the temple in Jerusalem. And now they think about how they would have heard Peter and John speak before the Sanhedrin. The apostles speak before the Sanhedrin. Stephen. And then they would have also heard them preaching in the temple. I love the fact that we are told that some of these priests grow in their faith in Jesus Christ since so many of them close their minds and their hearts to, him, the hearts to Jesus when he was among them. How do you feel about sharing the gospel? What, co what causes you sometimes to pause when the Holy Spirit nudges you? I pray you draw encouragement and strength from the courage of the apostles and the boldness of Stephen. Now let's look at Philip and Saul as examples of committed faith. First, let's look at Philip. He was always prepared and available to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be like Philip. Philip was one of the seven, like Stephen, that was chosen to care for the widows. He was also the second believer to perform miracles outside of the apostles. In Acts 8, we learn that after Stephen's death, there is great persecution that comes upon the church in Jerusalem, and the believers are scattered. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Philip was obedient to the Holy Spirit's direction, who to talk to, what to do, where to go, what to say. And so many believed in Samaria, and word made its way to Jerusalem. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that, there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This incident of the Samaritans is not... Uh, typical then or now, but had the Lord not held back the Holy Spirit and Peter and John not gone there, the Samaritans would have thrived and, be, and become another branch of the church, Just not unlike what we have today with the Western and Eastern Orthodox churches. Peter and John had to go to Samaria and lay hands on the believers for the Holy Spirit's indwelling in order to unite the people. The early church was stronger and healthier because God brought the two groups together under his name.
God used Peter to open the door to the Jews in Acts 2, to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and, what, and, and as we'll study in Lesson 3, to the Gentiles in Acts 10. After God used Philip in a mighty way in Samaria, the angel of the Lord told him to take a desert road south of Jerusalem towards Gaza. And there he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch, who was an official from the ancient country Nubia, which was south of Egypt. The, the Ethiopian was probably a convert to Judaism and was on his way home after attending the Pentecost in Jerusalem. As was customary at that time, the, the Ethiopian was reading the scripture out loud. He was reading Isaiah 56. The spirit told Philip to go to the chariot, chariot and stay near it. In other words, make himself available. Then the eunuch saw Philip and asked him to come and explain the scripture to him. And Philip gladly complied. Now, God could have sent the eunuch to Philip. But instead, he, send, he takes Philip away from the crowds and sends him to the eunuch because he wanted to show him that though he'd been speaking to crowds, now he was to be available to preach God's word to individuals. Why does this account in the Bible say that the Ethiopian was a eunuch? Well, after some research that was very disturbing, especially about the 18th century um, Italian opera, I, I learned what I thought was correct. The voice of a eunuch is changed because of the lack of testosterone. So upon hearing the Ethiopian read the scripture out loud, Philip would have realized that he was a eunuch. After this divine encounter, the eunuch goes on his way back to his home country and shares the gospel with, the, with people there. Philip's obedience bore fruit. And Philip continued to bear fruit. In Acts 21, we find him in Caesarea as an evangelist, still sharing God's word 20 years later. Now let's look at Saul, who will eventually be called Paul in Acts 13.9. We are first introduced to Saul at Stephen's stoning, where 8, Acts 8.1 tells us that he gave approval for Stephen's death. As you will read, Saul was enraged by the people of the way. Acts 9.1 says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul was tracking them down everywhere, even in their homes, men and women, and throwing them into prison. Saul was so zealous for God and his law that he, with great intensity, he threw himself into eradicating what he saw was a heresy. He went to the high priest and asked for a letter so he could go to Damascus and round up even more believers. So I wondered, why did he need a letter? Well, at the time, the Parthians ruled over Syria, and there was an agreement between the Parthians and the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, giving jurisdiction of the Jews in Parthia to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So that's why Saul needed to get a letter from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go to Syria, to Damascus. So I picture this very intense man feeling super important, important and self-righteous, clutching his letter, going down the road to Damascus. 
We will study Saul's encounter with Jesus next week and in future lessons. But right now I want to um, look, focus on another person, Ananias. After seeing, seeing Jesus, Saul is left both spiritually and physically blinded, and he's led to the house of Judas in Damascus. While Saul is there, Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, gets a vision from the Lord, and the Lord tells him to go to Saul, lay his hands on him, and uh, uh, renew his sight, give his vision back to him. Saul's account of this life-altering account was also in Acts 22. And he mentions Ananias, but not Ananias' response to the Lord. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Just like with Ananias, sometimes God asks us to speak to someone that we might not like or that we might fear speaking to them because we feel uncomfortable bringing up Jesus or, the, or anything about God. So we may ignore the nudge to say something, but we don't see the full picture. How can we? We don't know how God is going to use this person that he's asked us to approach. Just like with needlework, when you look at the, we're looking at the backside with the threads going every which way. But God is looking at his completed plan, at the completed tapestry in all its beauty. So the next time the Holy Spirit gives us a nudge, we need to have faith, trust God, and to give us the courage and the words to speak, and then go for it. The Lord responds to Ananias in verse 15, which is also a good summary of Paul's ministry and the first time that it, it stated that the um, gospel will go to the Gentiles. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. As you will read next week, Ananias obeyed. He, he did what God asked him to do. Even though he was reluctant, he obeyed. Saul's sight was restored and he was baptized. He soon began preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Because of Saul's faith in Jesus as his Messiah, his energy and zeal is redirected to sharing the gospel wherever, the God, wherever God led him. The story of Saul's conversion is covered in Acts 22 and, as I mentioned, and Acts 26. By recounting the story several more times, it indicates how important this was, that Luke saw that this was, to the early church. Saul is a great example of a completely changed person because of the gospel. This quote may be familiar to some, but I thought it, it described uh, Saul as well, of all of, as well as all of us who have been changed by the gospel. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not even what I hope to be. But by God's grace and Christ's love, I am not what I was. Who does the Holy Spirit bring to mind when you think about sharing the gospel? Is it someone, like with, Anani like with Ananias, that you really don't want to talk to? 
how can you use your story to share the gospel? And remember, be like Philip, be available to God. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We've looked at the examples in these chapters of courage and commitment provided by the Holy Spirit as Satan attempts to destroy the church from the externally through persecution. Now let's look at the counterfeits and Satan's attempt to destroy the church internally. Before we look at Acts 5, we need to go back and look at the very end of Acts 4 when Barnabas sells some property and takes all the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. Well, Acts 5 starts with a totally different story in contrast to Barnabas's generosity. Ananias and Sapphira decide to sell property, but they kept back some of the money from the sale. This word, these words, kept back, means to skim off the top or embezzle. I also want to point out that this is not the same Ananias who helped Saul. That Ananias lived in Damascus. This Ananias lives, lived in Jerusalem. So Ananias takes the remainder from the sale of the property and he lays it at the apostles' feet like he saw Barnabas do. But he did not get praise for his generosity for, from Peter. Instead, Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. And we know what happened a short time later was with Sapphira. Peter asked her the same question. She said, yes, this is how much we sold it for. And then Peter said this to her. How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband and are just outside the door, they, are, they will carry you out too. And she was buried beside her husband, Ananias. Satan was working from the inside to defeat God's church. Satan's best tool, pride, drove Ananias and Sapphira to sell their property but to put only a partial donation at the apostles' feet. Pride always opens the door to other sin, such as greed and deception, like with Ananias and, and Sapphira. But God will not tolerate deception in his church. Acts 5.9 says that they tested the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Matthew 4.7, where Jesus is speaking to Satan in the desert and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It seems Ananias and Sapphira's hearts were so filled with their own desires to be perceived as generous by the apostles that they fell victim to Satan's influence. Ephesians 6.12 warns us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We do not fear Satan and his minions because they are defeated. We reverently fear only the awesomeness, 
the holiness, the power of the creator of all things, the Lord God Almighty. Before we move on, let's remember the truth in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God didn't act outside of his nature when he struck down Ananias and Sapphira. You see, each time God starts a new period of salvation history, he judges sin severely. Because God's work must be done God's way to have God's blessing. There are three examples of God's severe judgment on your outline. All of them took place during key times in God's salvation history. I hope that you take the time to look at those. Next, we have the peculiar account of Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. He's another example of a counterfeit. Simon lived in Samaria. Because of Simon's great power, the people gave him their attention and followed him. Sounds like social media, doesn't it? And it made me wonder, who do we follow and why? Simon boasted and magnified himself and made great claims about his magical powers. But then Philip came to town, and as we know, God had given him the ability to perform miracles. Simon followed Philip wherever he went because he was astonished with the miracles that he saw. And after hearing Philip's preaching of the gospel, verse 13 tells us that even Simon believed and was baptized. But did he believe in the word of God or the miracles that he saw Philip perform? Was he trying to figure out how Philip did such marvelous things? Remember, Simon used to be the one with all the power, and he was the one that everyone followed. We know that Peter and John came to Simon's town in order to lay hands onto the Samaritan believers for the, for the Holy Spirit to come to them. Simon witnessed what he thought was great power from Peter and John. Simon wanted the same power so that everyone he touched could have the Holy Spirit. So he asked them to give, so he asked Peter and John to give him the same ability that they had. He even offered to pay for it. I think he, I wondered, did he think this was a power he could manipulate? But once again, just like with Ananias and Sapphira, the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter the, um, Simon's true motives. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you, for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive to sin. Simon heard the gospel, saw the miracles, professed faith, was baptized, but he was not born again. There's no evidence that he ever received the Holy Spirit. He was a clever counterfeit, and he would have become a member of the Samaritan congregation had Peter not exposed him just like he exposed Ananias and Sapphira. Are there times that you feel that you're under the enemy's attack? How do you fight back and resist the, the enemy's attacks? We can take great courage from the apostles and Stephen to stand for our faith, defend God's word, and boldly share the gospel. 
Like Philip, we can make ourselves available to the Holy Spirit's nudging so that he can use us to proclaim his word and bring glory to his name. And we can give the best of our time and our energy to God so that he can direct our steps like he directed Saul. Lastly, we can stand firm against counterfeit motives and deceitful actions controlled by Satan and instead ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's truth to us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you will always equip us with courage and the words to speak when we share your truth with others. Help us to resist the temptation to ignore your Holy Spirit's nudging, but instead fill us with love and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>